as John shared, Pastor John shared, my name is Jeremy Leong. Uh, my family and I have had the wonderful privilege of meeting and spending some time with you over this past weekend. Uh, I think there's somewhere back there. If not, Connor would be up here shouting my name for the next 45 minutes. So, um, uh, yeah, we're grateful for your warmth and hospitality throughout this weekend, and we'll look forward to that throughout the rest of today. Well, this is my first time preaching here. This is not actually my first time here. It was about 10 years ago. I want to say I sat right about there towards the middle back. I had just begun a corporate career with Amazon and was supposed to be moving to Maryland at the time, but headquarters sent me to Munaki. And so I was living out of a hotel in Ridgefield Park, didn't really know a soul up here. But one thing I remember being so encouraged by uh, was just coming through those doors and just seeing how magnificently God was surely working and ministering through his people in every place. And it really drove home the reality that uh, as Christians, our closest family is indeed God's family. And uh, so here I am near a decade later, uh, and I'm feeling the exact same way. And again, what a privilege it is to be with you all today. My goal here today, my goal here right now over the next 40, 45 minutes, uh, is the case every time I step into a pulpit, and that is to encourage you with the glorious truths of the gospel and to serve you in encountering the Lord Jesus through the scriptures. And so we, as we do that, we'll look to bring to the forefront how he is able to truly transform our lives. Also, as we prepare to dive into God's words today, let me just go ahead and pray for us as we begin. Father, we praise you for who you are, and we thank you for seeing fit to love us and for sending your son to save us. And so, God, we ask today, we ask right now that your spirit would strengthen us in our inner, in our inner being. God, that he would soften our hearts to receive from your word today and that we would be changed by it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? Many of you will have heard that paradox before. You see, an unstoppable force would require infinite energy, infinite activity, and an immovable object would have to occupy an infinite amount of space. So it would have to be everywhere. And if that's difficult for you to wrap your head around today, well, that's how it should be. It doesn't really compute because in one sense it can't. And that's the purpose of a paradox. Here's another one for you. Uncertainty is indeed the only thing that is certain in life. And knowing how to live with insecurity is the only security. It doesn't quite make sense, yet at the same time, in a way, it kind of does. And that's another paradox for you. See, paradoxes are uh, uh, seemingly contradictory statements or propositions that are actually true. Actually, they carry some validity to them. They exist to cause us to contemplate the nature of our very existence and to examine the deeper things in life. But what if I told you there actually was something immovable, something unstoppable? What if I told you there actually was something you could be totally certain about, totally secure in? Because we have that answer in our text this morning. 
And it's one of the most important things we could ever try and wrap our heads around. As we approach Romans chapter 8 today, we're going to be parachuting into this passage, which can be dangerous sometimes. When you do that, when you just kind of parachute into passages, you can run the risk of obviously taking the scriptures out of context. At most, we can produce heresy, but at the very least, we can do so at the expense of the bigger picture, the expense of what God is actually getting at in his word. And Romans is arguably the most parachuted into book in all the Bible. I'm sure there's many verses right now that are coming to mind in Romans. Romans 8, Romans 5, Romans 3, Romans 1. But what is the actual message of the book of Romans? And that's what I want to just very briefly, as we begin to get in, give you some high-level handles today. So if I was to summarize Paul's argument, Paul's message in Romans thus far leading up to chapter 8, basically, this world and this universe has a massive problem. You have a massive problem. I have a massive problem. We all have a problem. We've rebelled against the God of the universe and have, as a result, brought death and suffering upon ourselves and upon this world. That's Romans chapter 1. So if you're here today and you just feel like this world is not how it's supposed to be, that wars, that violence, that, that, that natural disasters and sickness and oppression, that they're like cancers in this world. And you wonder how, and you wonder why, and what is going on. Well, Romans is a book for you. And then in chapter two, if any of us are foolish enough to ever think that we aren't major contributors to that problem, that we aren't somehow part of that problem, well, think again. This applies to all of us, and that is Romans chapter 2. But here's the thing. Though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, God has seen fit to provide a solution. We can be restored by grace to be received by faith, and that is chapter 3. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Romans, if, if the one way this grand redemption is to be received is by faith, well, chapters five, uh, uh, 4, 5, and 6 tell us what that, what that actually means. What does that actually look like day to day? And then in chapter 7, it deals with the issue of, you know, I want to believe that. I want to believe it's all true. I want so badly to experience that kind of fullness. But this world is hard in day to day, whether from the outside or from the inside. I don't always feel united to Christ. And that brings us into chapter 8, bringing all of it into a final conclusion for this front half of the book of Romans. And our passage specific to today kind of wraps chapter 8 together. It's the very end of chapter 8. It puts a bow on it and addresses the issues of sin, and it addresses the issues of suffering in the world. And this text has answers to both of those. It addresses the hardship of God's people in the here and now, and what that means for them in the there and the then. We'll be looking at our verses for today a lot, so you'll definitely need your Bibles out. I want you to be looking at them to see if there's anything that I am saying that is not coming from God's Word. I want you to hit eject on me immediately. Uh, I have three points for you from today's text. Three points in the form of three statements, three promises that will change your life. Point number one, God is for you. That's verse 31 and 32. 
God is for you. Point number two, no one can condemn you. That's verse 33 and 34. And point number three, nothing can separate you. That's verse 35 to the end of the chapter. So God is for you. No one can condemn you. And nothing can separate you. Point number one, God is for you. Again, that's verse 31 and 32. It will be our longest point of the three. So if we're approaching the 30-minute mark and you're like, wow, he's still on point one. Don't worry, two and three will go by faster. In verse 31, Paul poses a massive question if you look right there. He writes, what then shall we say to these things? This comes on the heels of the ever well-known Romans 8.28, that God indeed works all things together for the good of those he has foreknown, he has predestined, he has called, he has justified, and soon will glorify. So those things that I just mentioned are the these things that he's talking about here. What shall we say to these things? That's what they are. You ever wonder, how can I really know that God loves me? That he's really for me? Well, for the Christian, for the one who has turned from their sin and put their hope and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, he made it a point to set his love upon you before the universe was ever created. And then he chose you and he effectually called you into his own divine family. And then he pronounced you righteous and blameless in his sight so that he could spend eternity with you. Friends, that sounds a lot like love. That sounds a lot like somebody being for you. What then shall we say to these things? Well, in posing a massive question, Paul then answers that question by making a massive statement in the form of another question. It says, if God is for us, and indeed he is, for those who are, uh, are his, who can be against us? Notice the confidence and the certainty in Paul's tone there. Make no mistake about it, Christian. God is for you. He doesn't waver day to day, depending on your performance or depending on the mood he's in or some sort of what have you done for me lately kind of transactional thing. This isn't like a quarterly or annual review at your workplaces where you keep having to go over your credentials and the impact of your work. God's goodness is nothing like that. It's not limited to some kind of bartering system or the value that you add to him. No, his goodness is ever present, always because he is ultimately for you, and that will never change. I recognize there may very well be folks here today who might not feel like that right now, this year, uh, perhaps struggling with the idea that God is indeed actually for you. Maybe you're here today as a Christian, and you're just thinking, you know, you have no idea where I'm at right now. You have no idea how sideways my life and my year has been. I just can't see how God is actually for me. And brother, sister, I get that. I, I really, really do. And I grieve with you at the heaviness of life. This world is hard and brutal. But if I could just say that God who is against you, Christian, who is out to, to, to get you, who makes a, uh, just gets a kick out of ruining your life and withholding good things from you, that is a God who doesn't exist. 
And as a lighthearted encouragement, fearing that God isn't too different from, from fearing you know, the likes of Sasquatch because they're, they're both fictional. They're not real. If God is for us, who can be against us? The use of against here, it's a very Old Testament use of the word. One of the worst, most terrifying phrases anybody could ever hear, would have, could have ever heard was God saying, I am against you. Or I have set myself against you, which we see time after time in the Hebrew scriptures. I think of Jeremiah 52, verse 31. It says, behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the, God, the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. I will hold you to account. But for the Christian, in God being for you and for me, nothing can stand against us. Nothing can shake us out of God's grasp. It's like saying, if there is an unstoppable force, what could ever get in its way? Infinite energy, infinite activity. If the one who is indestructible, incorruptible, unbeatable, has set his love upon you in eternity past and is with you, how could you ever lose? How could you ever be lost? Again, I, I'm not sure what each and every one of us here is uh, up against right now. Perhaps it's hardship in your marriage or financial struggles or a challenging situation at work and you just can't help but feel trapped right now. Maybe it's just the grind of life and you're exhausted and you just feel like you keep hitting dead end after dead end. Whatever it may be, would you press on, hold on, hope on because God is for you and he is working all things for your eternal good. And how can you know that? How can you actually know that he is for you? It's one thing to just say a statement and it's another thing to actually see it. And that's because he gave us his son. That's how we can know. He gave us his son. Verse 32, if you look there with me. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also graciously with him give us all things? Pastor and theologian John Piper has shared that this may indeed be the most important verse in the entire Bible. How can we truly know that God is for us? Well, he gave us his son. He gave us hard evidence. Friends, just to be clear, nobody does that. Nobody just gives up their own child for a, a stranger, less an alien, less an enemy. Nobody gives us their beloved son for, for, for anyone unless they're absolutely committed to them. And I think we have to ask, if God has indeed withheld nothing from us, well, why do we continue to withhold from him? Why do we continue to withhold our plans, our relationships, our finances, ultimately our hearts from God? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall we not also give him all things? Because God's infinite love and generosity towards you and towards me frees us to live this life full of sacrifice and service and loving God and in loving his people. It frees us from constructing our days and our weeks and our lives and our schedules around our own American comforts. He has not withheld anything from you. What are we continuing to withhold from him? Christ gave himself to serve you. 
How much of ourselves are we giving to serve him and his people? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Because if he gave up his son for us, how can we ever doubt that he will finally and fully come through for us? How can we ever doubt that he is indeed working all things together for our eternal good? This is why we heard from Genesis chapter 22 earlier. The story of Abraham being willing to offer up his beloved son Isaac. Not only is that passage critical for carving out a category for the putting forward of your beloved son, of his beloved son, but also for carving out a category of God so graciously providing a substitute to make atonement. Which a great way of thinking about atonement, if you think of that word, you can think of breaking it up into at one mint. Because of Christ's willing sacrifice, you and I are now able to be made at one with God. It's what indeed needed to take place in order for that relationship to be restored. Typically, the idea of atonement might be associated with the question, for whom did Christ die? Who is the us there? Gave him up for us all. But I've read that understanding that question is first dependent on understanding the question of what did Christ actually achieve by his death? What actually happened there? And to sum it up, the Bible simply states that God purchased you with the price of his son, and he knew exactly what he was purchasing. He knew exactly who he was purchasing. He knew exactly what he was paying for, right? You don't just walk into a store and throw a hundred bucks out and say, hey, I'll take whatever you give me. No, you walk in and you say, that, that's exactly why I'm here. That's what I'm here to buy. And that is what happened on the cross. As humanity has woken up every single day and chosen themselves over God, chosen sin over God, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And if he was willing to pay that price for you, that price for me, what does that say about how far he's willing to go for us? How will he not also give us everything? He's not going to stop short on the final day, which is the last part of verse 32. If you look there, it says, if God did that for you, how will he not also with him give us all things? Two quick things to note there. First, if you look at the words there, it says with him. None of this happens, to be clear, apart from Christ. God doesn't just award us eternal life as some kind of works-based prize or award. Rather, eternal life is the natural result of being united to Jesus in a death like his, that we might be united to him in a life like his. It's what happens along with every other benefit when we are swept up into the triune love and fellowship of the eternal God who exists forever. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about eternal life, when we're talking about receiving all things. And the second thing to note there, the words all things, this of course is not talking about every earthly health, every earthly wealth and happiness you could ever imagine. Anyone who tells you that is lying to you and you should stop listening to them. Just a few verses back in verse 18, Paul says that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So then what are these all things that we're looking forward to receiving as Christians? Well, again, back at verse 30, he has foreknown us. 
He has predestined us. He has justified us. And we are now simply waiting on our final glorification. That's where we are in the process. It's the last domino that needs to fall. That's what we're anticipating. We live in this very unique sliver in the history of time right now where Christ has come and Christ is yet coming again. The already but not yet, some theologians have called it. And yet, while that is a very real reality, it can just seem so far and so abstract sometimes, right? You ever think about the timeline of your life? Childhood, adolescence, constructing a career, maybe having a family, reaching retirement, and then pretty grim for a second, I know, but then what comes? Death and a gravestone. I listened uh, a week or so ago to Pastor Eric do a wonderful job teaching on that very reality, right? But if you think about it, what represents every stage of your life there on that gravestone? Each and every achievement and success you poured yourself out for, spent hours upon hours, days upon days, years after years pursuing. What about every trial and sorrow you experienced in that life? Where do you see that on that gravestone? It's all contained in that little dash. That dash, 1959, dash, 2045. 1986, dash, 2052. It's all right there. And the Bible teaches that that little dash determines everything else. And that everything else, friends, is what the Christian has to look forward to. Those things to be infinitely received with the one who gave himself for you and longs to spend eternity with you, lavishing grace upon grace upon grace with you forever. And so to anyone here today for a second that I would address to anyone who does not call yourself a Christian, or perhaps anyone today who would call yourself a Christian, but it's more of a a, a demographic choice to you. You know, you spent a lot of time in and around Christianity growing up, but deep, deep down, if you search your heart, you don't believe it. You don't want it. I get that you may be here today feeling relatively indifferent towards God, but have you ever stopped to question if he feels the same way about you today? Because here's the thing, the Bible teaches that if you are not in Christ, if you are not so much turning from your sin, but uh, uh, persisting in it unrepentantly, Well, friends, he is indeed not only not for you, and no, neither is he indifferent towards you. The Bible teaches that the God of the universe is actually against you while you are on this course. And so I want to invite you, dear friend, to turn from your sin, just as Jesus did, just as Jesus does. Make today the day. Turn from your sin. It has nothing of lasting value for you. It will only serve to destroy you. It will consume that tiny timeline of your life, that tiny dash of this life, and then it will curse you at the very end as you spend an eternity apart from God and all his goodness. Turn from your sin. Call upon the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, because no matter what you've done, no matter what you could ever do, he is faithful to forgive all who call upon him. Would you make today the day that you turn from your sin and follow the Lord Jesus? I pray that it would be so. Christian, God is for you. Point number one, 
Point number two, no one can condemn you. When I say no one can condemn you, that is exactly what I mean. That's exactly what Paul means. Because of what Jesus has done, the slate is able to be wiped clean for all who simply trust in him. There's nothing to condemn anymore, as verse 34 puts it. And verse 33, just before it, says right there that there's nothing even left to accuse. Nothing to condemn, nothing to accuse. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died, it says. If you're looking for a, I'm going to talk for a second about justification. If you're looking for a definition on that, the Gospel Coalition's confessional statement says, if you listen closely to this, it says, inasmuch as Christ was given by the Father for us and his obedience and punishment were accepted in place of our own, kind of like that substitute we were talking about, freely and not for anything in us, this justification is solely of free grace in order that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. What this means is that God has already declared his verdict over those he has foreknown, over those he has called, and no matter what you've come from, what you've done in the past, he has justified his elect as blameless in his sight. I've heard one ministry leader say that this is like if you fast forward to judgment day, You go right into that courtroom, a real day, a real judge, but you already know the ruling before that day even gets there. It's like you get a jury duty notice in the mail and it says, don't worry, you don't have to come. Because to be justified by God is to walk into that courtroom having already received the verdict in advance. There's no question, no anxiety, no hypervigilance involved in fearing if you're actually gonna be found guilty on that day. Friends, this is the joy and the blessedness and the privilege of justification. It removes condemnation. It says the late J.I. Packer wrote, justification is the primary blessing because indeed it removes our most primary need. Something key that needs to be drawn out here and made clear is that justification is not just forgiveness. Okay, justification is not just forgiveness. Forgiveness, don't get me wrong, is a wonderful blessing, but justification is something more than forgiveness. Justification is a declaration. Picture this, justification is like walking, or or, or, um, forgiveness, just forgiveness is like walking backwards through life. Looking back, forgiving. Looking back, forgiving. Picture yourself like walking backwards at your workplace or at the airport. What would you think of me if I was walking backwards through church today? But what justification does is it allows you to actually turn around, to spin around and walk forward through life. It allows you to walk forward in full assurance, no matter the circumstance. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, it disarms Satan, as Paul wrote. Imagine a world where you didn't have that kind of assurance. Imagine a world on your worst days. Think of your worst day, Christian, your worst performance. Satan would use that to stir your doubts and to crush you. But how does Romans chapter 8 start out? It says, there is therefore when now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing to condemn, nothing to even accuse. That goes for anyone out there and that goes for ourselves as well. Sometimes we are our greatest accusers, right? Employing some sort of superstitious like internal demerit system. 
But verse 33, if you look, finishes out saying, it is God who justifies. Basically, he is the one who uh, makes the rules. He is an infinitely holy one, not your feelings, not your CEO or HR department, not some kind of worldly standard of justice. God, Christ Jesus is the one who died. And Paul doesn't stop there. He continues his crescendo in the middle of uh, verse 34. He says, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If the wages of sin truly are death, well then once Christ paid for sin, what else was he to do but rise? And not just resurrection, not just ascension, but intercession as well. You might have heard that word before. At the right hand of God right now interceding for us. We've talked a lot already just now about what Jesus has done in the past, and rightfully so. But our salvation is incomplete if we don't also remember and consider what is taking place right now in the present. Right this moment, Jesus is interceding for you. And what does that actually mean? Uh, faithful brother and pastor in Virginia, Mike McKinley, he says to think of Jesus as your defense attorney, representing your interests in court right now as we speak, pointing to his own blood as proof of your innocence and praying before the Father all of your needs, everything on your mind right now that is serving to distract you, Jesus is taking to the heavenly Father in prayer. I think it was Robert McShane who said, uh, um, If I knew the Lord Jesus, if I could see the Lord Jesus praying in the other room for me, I would not fear a million enemies. What a glorious thought to behold. But wait a second, the accuser, you know what you've done. You know who you are deep down, friends. The accuser has direct evidence of your wrongdoing. He has forensic proof. Multiple confessions, expert testimony. What are you going to say now? What are those thoughts that are coming to your mind right now? He's going to say nothing. Because it doesn't matter. It's all been dealt with. It's all been reviewed. It's all been ousted. And the sentence of those things has already been issued and completed. And now there's nothing left to be said. There is nothing left to even accuse. And there is nothing to condemn. The payment isn't pending. The payment is processed and posted. Dear saints, you want to be confident that there is absolutely no condemnation left for you? Meditate, believe, and be refreshed by the life, death, resurrection, and intercession of the Lord Jesus for you. You've probably heard and perhaps even said a lot that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And as this text makes clear, that loving relationship is is, is very infinitely on display, but its main application is to actually live in light of that relationship. And what does that relationship actually look like at its very core, you might wonder? Well, it looks like a constant and humble meeting with Jesus at the foot of the cross. And an act of handing over your sin in that solemn transaction. And he takes it. And then you live freely by the faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Amen? Point number one, God is for you. Point number two, no one can condemn you. 
Now, finally, point number three, nothing can separate you. That's verse 35 to 39. Nothing can separate you. Verse 35 says, who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, which just means death. Notice he writes, who? Who shall separate us, not what shall separate us? He says, who? But then what does he do? He goes on to list a bunch of what's. And never forget, friends, that Satan is indeed looming around, seeking to destroy you, and he uses the what's to blind you to the who. One Puritan reformer once wrote that the devil aims in all the sufferings of God's children to draw them off from Christ, to make them murmur and despair. Have you ever thought it so interesting that the very things that cause us to doubt God's promises are the very things that God indeed promises? Suffering, sin, trials, death. You'll notice the, verse, the first three there in verse 35. Those are the pressures of living in this world that hates God. Tribulation, distress, and persecution. The second two there were promised by Jesus time and time again throughout the Gospels. So famine and nakedness or, or being utterly destitute and lacking what we need. And then the final ones there are simply what the end of our lives lead to and what we should expect as Christians. Friends, we cannot forget the kind of world we live in. As verse 18 through 21 earlier in the chapter point out, it says we're living in a decaying world, which Paul says is going through birth pains, he calls them, in anticipation of the world that is to come. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and death. Birth pains that point to the dawning of new life. I once had a professor in seminary who would say that heaven is an acquired taste, kind of like coffee, and that one of the primary ways Christians acquire such a taste is by experiencing the pain and the vileness and the evil and suffering of this passing world as we look and long for the next one. As the Bible testifies from cover to cover how God simply seeks for his people to trust him, well, perhaps, friends, this is the ultimate test of trust for us. Trusting God as we walk with him through difficulty, pain, and suffering. And where does that walking lead to, you might ask? Well, that is the question. Because that question has two answers in the remaining verses of this passage. The first answer comes in verse 36. Where are we being led to? Verse 36 says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So answer number one, where are we being led to? To the slaughterhouse. Wow. Now stay with me here. Sure enough, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. This is specifically in Psalm 44. It's a psalm written in the midst of deep distress and despair about how God's people are surrounded by persecution and humiliation, and desperation for the Lord's deliverance. Lord, would you just come through for us? Literally like sheep in a corral, just waiting for execution. And the psalm starts with the psalmist recounting all the ways God has delivered them previously. That's at the start of it. And then it ends still with hope and anticipation. But what's sandwiched in the middle of that psalm that actually takes up the majority of that psalm? Hardship. 
terror, dejection. And dear friends, this is surely what we can expect as well. And Paul and God want us to be infinitely clear of that. And that's why Paul goes directly to this psalm in Romans 8, encouraging us to look back on the rem- in remembrance on how God has foreknown you and called you and justified and delivered you time and time and time again. And then to look forward in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the trials and hardship, to look forward to his final deliverance. We give such a hard time sometimes to prosperity gospel teachers, which teach you that if you love God, you'll have all the earthly health and wealth, right? But how common, if we're honest with ourselves, deep down, do we really believe it? Do we really desire consciously, subconsciously, all the earthly health, wealth, and pleasure of this world? This life is indeed not designed for everything to go according to our plans, This is not ultimately about our own personal kingdoms here, but about his eternal kingdom there. Things may go wrong. Things may seem wrong for us this side of heaven, but I'm convinced that they exist to ensure we stay leaning on the one who will take us to that side of heaven. And that leads us straight into the height of Paul's crescendo, not just in this passage, not even just for this chapter, Really, the fortissimo of the book of Romans, if you think in a grand orchestra. The grand finale at a fireworks show is what this is heading into. Because while the first answer to the question of where are we being led to might be compared to the slaughterhouse of Psalm 44, the answer, the second answer of where are we being led to is to eternal glory with the Lord Jesus and eternal blessedness with him. Paul says, no, no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Corporately, all the ransomed church of God being saved to sin no more on that day. Being saved from the decaying world that we live in and everything that will pass away with it. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, verse 37. Notice it says, in all these things, in them, Right smack in the middle of them, we are more than conquerors. Not outside of them. Not apart from them. Not after all of them have settled down. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. I am a very orderly person. I I like to have things kind of sorted out before proceeding. As many of you discovered this weekend, particularly Kathy, I also have a very weak digestive system. And so in weeks that are particularly wild, Weeks that are very full, weeks that are very stressful, didn't eat well, didn't sleep well, I'm very overwhelmed. It's just really helpful for me to kind of find a time where I could just kind of align everything, settle everything down, get all my ducks in a row, clear out all my notifications, and then, okay, I think we're good. I think we can, you know, persevere and move on now. That is not what this text is talking about. It's not about everything being aligned and okay in life after all of the crazy, after all of the hardship passes, because the moment you think you've gotten there, church, or are getting to that place where nothing is wrong, you have full peace, and now you can proceed forward. This fallen world, as many of you know and can attest to, already has the next thing coming, already has the next thing queued up. 
And this is why it is so foolish to build our, eternal, our entire lives around the comfort and convenience this world has to offer. Around seeking to stay as safe and secure and liked as possible because it can and it will be gone in an instant. I'll never forget I had this one employee a number of years ago. I used to check in with him every single day. Uh, he had this spirit about him that would just kind of make everyone around him happier. Always joking around, always bringing people together. He was set to retire in less than six months. He had been working his whole life, and it was finally time. Then one day I came into work and learned that he had had a heart attack while driving, and he had crashed into a tree, and that was the end for him. We are truly one diagnosis, one email, one tragedy from our worlds being turned upside down, if they haven't already been already. And yet my understanding and getting to know that man during that time, as I was able to, is that he crashed that day trusting in the Lord Jesus. And if it was indeed true, make no mistake about it, he received, he has received a billion times what he could have ever hoped for, what he could have ever dreamed of and asked for in retirement. That man that day died a conqueror. Those words there, more than conquerors, we are indeed more than conquerors. That's actually one word. It's the word that the Apostle Paul makes up, huper nikao, or hyper Nike, you could say, which is, yes, where Nike gets its brand name. And Paul does this from time to time. He makes up compound words in his writings to be extraordinarily clear, to leave absolutely no space for error or misunderstanding. His point here is that there is an overwhelming all-surpassing invincibility and victory for those who are in Jesus Christ. And remember, Paul is speaking autobiographically here. Paul has had it all, and he has had absolutely nothing. Paul has had the cushiest of living situations, and Paul has been on the brink of death sleeping next to a dumpster. Celebrate his faith, celebrated for his faith and beaten to a pulp because of his faith applauded for his faith, yet also uh, laughed at and ridiculed for the things he would teach. And what is Paul's reaction time and time again? I am a super conqueror in Christ. Come whatever may, I am his, and I know what awaits me. You can kill me, and you can send me straight into the presence of the Lord Jesus forevermore. Or you can let me live, and I'm going to devote myself to the building up of his church and to the sharing of his gospel with whoever I come in contact with. It's a win-win for Paul. And why should that look anything different for us here today, church? Some of us have had it all. Some of us have had next to nothing. Some of us have had both. Some of us have been praised for our faith. Some of us have paid a great price for our faith. Many of us have really poured ourselves out for the building up of Christ's church. And some of us haven't, if we're honest. Whatever the case may be, what is the encouragement we need? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through the one who set his sights upon you in eternity past and said, he is mine. She is mine. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's going on here is that Paul is thinking up every possible threat, every conceivable worry you could ever have, past, present, future, from without, from within, above, below, spiritual, physical, and yet his conclusion is infinitely clear. Is there anything that could go wrong? Is there anything that could separate us from the love of God whatsoever? No. No. Nothing at all. Nothing in all time and space. Nothing, period, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from an eternal glory with him. Is there anyone else who is for you like this? Is there anyone else who has loved you or can love you like this? For the past 10 years of my life in corporate America, I have been on call after call, elevator after elevator, dinner after dinner, full of folks pursuing the things they think are going to fulfill them in this life. They think are finally going to satisfy them when we just keep lusting after the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next level, the next income bracket, the next car, the next dream house. It's a trap. Oh, wow, we could have it all if we would just turn to Jesus in an instant. And for us here today who have turned to Jesus, where are we currently being deceived into looking for that kind of love? Where are we being deceived and tricked and trapped into looking for that kind of fulfillment? Perhaps it's some of those things, the next promotion, the next tax bracket, the next level, that spouse, that dream house or an early retirement. You know, as we prepare to conclude throughout this passage, we get a ton of rhetorical questions. You might have noticed, seven to be exact. Seven questions. You would think we'd have seven answers, right? But we only get one. One answer for all seven. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Each question leads us straight to what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. All of these answers are found in the cross, and all of our answers are found in the cross indeed. Well, what about with this situation? What about that situation? Look at the cross, my friend. Well, what about all the sin that I have committed? What about all of my issues? What about all these doubts I have that I haven't talked to anybody about? Look at the cross. Okay, but then how can we encourage one another? How can I stay motivated in the church? How can we be certain that this future God has promised us is and will actually materialize? The cross, the cross, the cross. One of my absolutely favorite books I shared yesterday of all time is The Valley of Vision. It's, it's a book of prayers, and in there, there's a prayer titled God and Myself. And there, there are these words. It says, whatever cross I am required to bear... Let me see him carrying his a heavier. Is there anything truly immovable? Anything unstoppable? Is there anything truly certain or secure in this life? Or are we just constantly hedging, 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 waiting to be let down? You see, this world these days will try and tell you that 
you're unstoppable. You have what it takes. You are the one who is infinitely worthy of all love and acceptance and everything you ever wanted in life. You just have to accept everything you are. Name it and claim it. Manifest it. Speak it into existence. What utter nonsense and foolishness. Because this is not ultimately about you and this is not about me. It is about the immovable God and his unstoppable love for you. Like a freight train you find yourself on. There is nothing about you that is taking you from here to there. It's all about God. And there is nothing more certain or secure than him. You want to know what the greatest of all paradoxes is? The idea of paradox at its peak? Well, once again, it's the cross. The ultimate sign of weakness, yet the greatest show of strength. Utter powerlessness, yet completely in control. An almighty king, but a lowly servant. A holy God loving the unholy. Enemies of God becoming friends of God. The death of one man leading to the life of all men. And finally, a shameful cross, yet a glorious throne. Let's pray. Lord God, what a thought to behold today that you are indeed forever for us. That you have given your son for us, that you long to be with us. God, we pray for anyone here who does not know you. God, we pray that you would soften their hearts, open up their eyes toward their need of you. And Lord, we also pray for those who do know you. Would your spirit fall afresh on them today, right now? For those you've set your infinite love upon from eternity past, God, would you draw near to them? Would you draw near to us today? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.